It's always a great joy to uh, welcome a former uh, solid rocker to the RCC pulpit. Uh, Lyndon, we go way back with Lyndon, as uh, Justin has already mentioned in his prayer. Uh, Lyndon was uh, probably a regular on Wednesday nights at the house and Tuesday morning prayer breakfast, right? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And maybe even some of Todd's spend the night parties, right? (laughs) I'm not going to ask you if you leaped from our loft onto the pillows (laughs) on the living room floor. I don't want to know. I don't want to know if you did that. Okay, so, uh, but man, Lyndon, we love you. We love your family. Uh, It's a joy to partner with you in your mission. Uh, We look forward to see how that's going to unfold as you transition to your new spot. And, uh, but today we're looking forward you hear you preach the word to us. So you come, brother, and, and open it up for us. Thank you. Thank you so much for letting me be here and to worship with you, and it's been so good. Thank you, worship team, and uh, just for the prayers this morning. This has been so good just to, to be with you all this morning, and and even as Butch is saying, we, I go pretty way back here. And so even just seeing a lot of the people that I knew growing up now, and you guys have lots of kids, they're teenagers, they're young, they're, they're, they're getting big. And this is just amazing to, to come here and see our church full uh, this morning. And I, I just praise God for that. And so thank you so much for your support. Thank you so much for your prayers for me and my family. It means a lot to me. Uh, you know, we, we've been in pretty much churches every, a different church almost every Sunday uh, the last several months. And so uh, it's always taxing. But when you come to a place like RCC that has uh, so much meaning and value to us just from a personal standpoint because of the relationships here, um, it means a lot to be here this morning. So please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 15. We'll be looking at verse uh, 1 through 11 this morning, but we'll really concentrate on the first six verses, really. You know, not far from the country where we were serving in our host's country, uh, we had to renew our visas in the first year because the type of visa we had, we had to leave the country and then come back in. And so we were staying at the country of Georgia. Uh, So it was really interesting. We're staying at this Airbnb and the host had left us a complimentary bottle of red Georgian wine. And so one night, Gemma and I decided to crack it open and have a glass to see what it tasted like, see if it was any good. And we did, and it was really, it was really good. And I don't even like wine, and so this prompted me to do a little research about Georgia, and I came to find out that they're the oldest wine-producing country in the world. So they proclaim, and so that started me thinking, like, where do we see wine or vineyards? Where do we see that first in the scriptures? Does anybody know? Noah. Noah is the first place where we see wine or vineyards introduced in the scriptures. And so you see with the ark, you know, in, you know, landing there in, in Mount Ararat in eastern Turkey in the close proximity to Georgia in that part of the world, I wouldn't doubt that that maybe is the oldest wine producing country in the world. But as you begin to look at Noah and the scriptures and see vineyards and wine, it becomes part of Israel's culture, a part of their history, a part of their celebrations and marriage festivals. And so it becomes part of their life. And so even in the scriptures, you see biblical writers taking this analogy of the vineyard and using it to communicate. And of course, Jesus, our master teacher, takes this analogy and he communicates truth to us even this morning. So let us read this scripture Uh, this morning. So would you please rise as we read God's word in honor of him. John 15, verses 1 through 11. 
I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. For I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples as the father has loved me. So have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we just ask you, Lord, thank you for being with us this morning. As we, your people, enter into your presence to worship you, thank you for already being with us, uh, Lord. And we pray even now as uh, we hear your word that, God, that which is true and good and right would lodge deep into our hearts, O God, that it would lead us into worship, into action for your namesake, O Lord. But that which is not of your word, O Lord, that which is not true, let it not take hold in these hearts. But, Lord, we pray you be with us. We pray for your spirit to be amongst us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Our first point this morning is life is found in the vine, so look to the true vine. Well, since we're parachuting into this passage today, it might help to have a little context of where we are. Well, Jesus is in his last days in Jerusalem. Uh, he's, this is the Passover. You know, he's meeting with his disciples in the upper room. He washes their feet. And then he gives them this famous farewell discourse. And in the midst of this, we found our passage we're looking at this morning. But also he's comforting because he's telling them of his upcoming death. And he's trying to comfort and also encourage him that, yes, the helper, the Holy Spirit is going to come. And so in the midst of this great discourse that he gives us, it's helpful to know that, you know, the next day Jesus is going to be crucified. So whatever he's giving these final parting shots to his disciples, it's worth taking ear here and go, what, what is he saying here? It's worth taking note to understand what is he trying to tell them? Well, this is Jesus' seventh and final I am saying, the famous final I am sayings that Jesus gives. This is the seventh one. And this clearly links back to Exodus 3.14. You remember the passage where, where you know, Moses is talking to God through the burning bush. And he says, you know, what is your name? He says, I am who I am, which is translated Yahweh or Lord. And there's so much meaning behind this name. We could, we could spend a whole sermon just talking about that alone. But what does it mean? Succinctly put, it's like it's the eternal, self-sustaining, sovereign God who keeps his covenant, who keeps his word. And Jesus is saying, I am the Lord. Well, when Jesus says, I am the true vine, there is a whole backdrop to this language that the original audience, they would not, it would not have been lost on them. Let me just read Psalm 80 for you to give a little context. Psalm 88 through 13. Well, you brought a vine out of Egypt. 
You drove the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, and the mighty cedars with its branches. It set out its branches to the sea, and it shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls, so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move along the field feed on it. Well, the vine, this was a metaphor for Israel. In fact, this was so precious, they saw themselves as God's vine. That at one point, they printed it on their own coins in their history, saying, you know, we are God's vine. It was precious to them. But interesting, whenever you see the analogy of the vineyard, often when it's being used in Scripture, it's in the context of God's judgment against Israel because they were not producing fruit. Isaiah 5 says they're producing wild grapes. God had cleared the ground. He had put them in the best place, give them all the resources they need to grow and to flourish. And yet they produced rotten fruit. Well, if you bounce down from the passage I was just reading in Psalm 80 and verse 17, it says, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Again, this original reference is to Israel. The king would be included in that as well. Israel and her king, but this was to be that this was the son of man that, that God had raised up and was seen as Israel. But as we see in John's gospel, it's very clearly presented that Jesus, he is the son of man. And not only is he the son of man, he's the son of God. And where Israel had failed to keep covenant, to produce life, uh, covenant keeping eternal fruit. Where they had failed, Jesus would not fail. Jesus, in fact, he is replacing Israel. He is now Israel. He is the true Israel. And through this, we will see him keep covenant because he is the true vine. And even this morning, as Israel was not able to keep covenant, they needed the true vine. So do we. We have not been able to be faithful to God's covenant. We need his grace, and that grace is found in the true vine. So look to him this morning. Worship him. Praise him. And if you are not connected to the true vine, call out, on, call out in him in faith. Well, let's look at our second point this morning. Life is found in the vine, so abide in the true vine. Well, at the heart of all the seven I am statements, I won't read them all, but just some bits and pieces, we find that life is at the center of all of them. I am the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then our passage, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Even in this is life. So where is this life found? Where do we find it? It's in Jesus. Now, he commands them in verse 4 to abide in him as I in you. But notice that when he gives this command to abide, it doesn't become, it comes after verse 3. Verse 3, he's reminding his disciples that, listen, you are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. God's word was living in them. They were clean because of that. And because they were clean, they did not have to abide for salvation. The quality of their abiding did not get them acceptance with God. 
did not get them clean. It had already happened because of Christ or would happen because of Christ and his atoning sacrifice. And that's important for us as well. As they have been born again, so have we been born again, united in this mystical life, this life dynamic, powerful union in Christ where we can't abide ourselves in the salvation. It has already been done for us. We receive it in faith. And even that is of grace and a gift from God. And because of that, because of that foundation of cleanness, are we able to respond and abide in him? So this passage, I know, is a probably familiar passage. If you've been in the church for any time, you've heard this passage, you probably have even memorized it. So what does this word abide mean? It's a very rich and deep word. And it could be translated to remain, to stay, to dwell, to live, to continue. It can be said that we have made our home in Jesus and he has made his home in us. In fact, we are so intricately and intimately connected to him that as he is the vine and we are the branches, his life flows into us, his life giving us what we need for life. Well, when Jesus does give this command to abide in him, that the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, he repeats himself. And then in verse five, emphatically says, in case you guys are missing this, you cannot bear, you can, apart from me, you can do nothing. He wants to make it clear, not only can you not produce fruit, but you can produce nothing of eternal value apart from me. So why do you think Jesus is emphasizing this, this need to abide in him? Jesus knows you, and he knows me. He knows uh, if we can do it on our own, we will. We're, we're smart. We are sufficient. We have a shelf of, of trophies we can point to our accomplishments and to the, the great life that we've made for ourselves. It's only when there's a problem that comes our way that we do not have a solution for. Perhaps COVID, perhaps there's a, re a relationship of a loved one where there are some serious problems going on and you do not have an answer for these things. Or there is a sin that is overpowering your life and you don't know what to do against it. Then do we, need, do we begin to abide in Jesus. It's like a pastor friend of mine said, he says, I will try everything else. And when all else has failed, then do I call on the Lord. You know, prayer truly is the litmus test, isn't it? The act of prayer communicates dependence on God and our inability to produce life, the life that comes from the true vine. If we have a life of little prayer, there's probably little abiding in Christ going on. But if there's a life much of prayer, there's probably much abiding in the Lord going on. I don't think it's a coincidence, as Jesus is teaching on this, abiding in him and I and you, that he connects it to prayer in verse 7. Prayer and abiding is very much connected. If I could be so bold to, you know, bring up the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 16 is a great section on good works. Uh, I encourage you to read it sometimes, but in article three, it talks about 
God gives us his grace and the Holy Spirit to work in believers to do his will. But this is what it says. It says, their ability to do good works is not at all from themselves, but entirely from the Spirit of Christ. Amen. But it continues. Well, this truth, however, should not cause believers to become negligent as though they were not bound to perform any duty without a special moving of the Spirit. Rather, they ought to be diligent in stirring up the grace of God that is in them. We're not to wait for a moving of the Spirit. We're to take action. Uh, Jude uh, chapter 1, 20 and 21 says this. Beloved, build yourselves up in the most holy faith. Uh, pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Did you see those verbs? Keep yourself. Pray. Build yourselves up. D.A. Carson famously put it, quote, people do not drift toward holiness apart from grace-driven effort. People do not gravitate toward godliness, toward prayer, to obedience of scriptures, to faith and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and we call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and we call it freedom. End quote. Holiness isn't just going to happen. We're not just going to drift toward it. It is grace-driven effort. Augustine had a clever way of putting it. He said, without God, we cannot. Without us, God will not. Let me repeat that. Without God, we cannot. But without us, God will not. Are we completely 100% dependent on God's grace and his Holy Spirit? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. But also, God is not going to do it without us. He wants to do it in us, through us. And that's only going to happen through a proper pursuit. But it's going to come through our union, through our life-giving, dynamic, powerful union in Christ. And through him, are we able to pursue holiness in him? So abide in him as he abides in you. Well, our third point this morning is life is found in the vine. So embrace the vine dresser's pruning. When verse 2, John 15, 2 says, every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, and every branch that does bear fruit, that it may bear more. Every branch that does bear fruit, he, that it may bear more fruit. Excuse me. So we get this right here. There's something that happens here. We get a severe warning. First, if, uh, if you're not a living branch, you're a dead branch. If you're a living branch, you produce fruit. But there's a warning that if you are not producing fruit, that these branches are dead. And in fact, verse 6 says they are gathered up and they are thrown into the fire. And this is a reference toward eternal judgment. I can't help but think when Jesus was teaching on this, you know, remember, he's doing this farewell discourse to his disciples. Remember, Judas has already left to go betray him. And I can't help but think Judas is in Jesus' mind as he's teaching this. Judas had been with Jesus for three years. He had seen the miracles. He had seen uh, Jesus' power demonstrated. He had sat under the sermons and the teaching of Jesus' life-giving words. He had had the intimate conversations over the, over the fire eating fish with Jesus. 
And after three years, he could walk away, not produce uh, life-giving repentance and faith in Christ. He, he could walk away and not do that. Man, that, what a warning to the church. Whether this is your first Sunday here or you've been in church your whole life, examine yourself. Do you have fruit in your life? Is there fruit? Is the Spirit working in your life? Examine your hearts. If not, call upon Him today, for this is the day of salvation. We also get another promise in that verse that if a branch bears fruit, the divine gardener will prune it so that it will bear more fruit. This is a wonderful promise. It's not just if these branches over here are doing great, they're producing great fruit, that the gardener is going to prune them so they can even continue to produce more fruit. But these branches over here, if they're just producing a little fruit, I'm just, you know, it's just kind of ignore them. If I, get, if I have time, I'll get to them. No, the, there's no condition. If there is fruit, the gardener is going to prune it so that it may bear more fruit. You know, I was reading an article about pruning because I know nothing about vineyards. And so after the harvest, you know, the, they get all the grapes up. The rainy season begins to set in. This is also during winter. And this time where it's rainy, it's gloomy, it's uh, cold, this is when they do all the pruning. And it takes an experienced, skilled vine dresser who really knows what they're doing. And this vine dresser has been taking care of the vineyard probably for years. And so he knows it very, very well. And so at that point, the vines have been growing in all different directions. And so they need to be cut back for the next year's production, for next year's um, harvest to maximize their fruit production. The vineyard people call this creating the fruit zone. I promise I'm not making that up creating the fruit zone. This would be a great t-shirt for you guys at RCC, creating the fruit zone. We're creating the fruit zone. But like this, we all need unneeded growth cut out of our lives. This pruning, though, it often comes in trials, in difficulties, in hardships, in suffering. Uh, an author named Dave Furman of the book Kiss the Wave, Embracing God in Your Trials, he said this, Suffering helps us to identify the idols that are in our lives, those deeply ingrained sins. When we're being pressed by something, what comes out of us is a good indication of what we're trusting in. It sets the stage where we can see our hearts and what's in our hearts. That's what trials do for us. You know, when we first arrived in Central Asia, you know, I was really excited. We had been preparing uh, to go there. There had been much time and energy put into this. And we had finally arrived. We had arrived in our airport in the middle of the night and our team leader had come and no locals were with them. I mean, it was the middle of the night. They're probably sleeping. I don't blame them. Uh, and so he picks us up and we're excited. And then the first Sunday comes and we're there to worship. And we're so glad to meet the church. We hadn't been on a vision trip, by the way. This is our first time into the country. And so we show up and people are like, so who are you? Um, where'd y'all come from? Why are you here? Uh, they had no idea we were coming. Well, as the weeks proceeded, uh, there were no invitations to people's house to say, hey, welcome to our country. We're glad you're here. There were no invitations out to tea to say, hey, do you guys need any help with anything? Are you adjusting okay? 
And one morning, wallowing in my anger, (laughs) I begin to hear the gentle words of Jesus. Lyndon, do you know how much I sacrificed for you? Lyndon, do you know the price that I paid for you and my bride in Central Asia? This was the first of a number of lessons where Jesus would take me into his school of humility. He was exposing my pride and my need to repent of that and turn to him in faith that my life, you know, my identity, my value would be in him. What is it that Christ may want to reveal to you this morning? In a very similar verse to this pruning verse is the famous Hebrews 12, where he talks about discipline. I think this is a very helpful section. It says, for the Lord disciplines the one that he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This discipline, this pruning is a painful process. Things are being cut out of us that we even know need to be cut. Things are being removed that we necessarily do not want removed. Perhaps your reaction to suffering and pain is a lot like mine. Please keep it as far away from me as possible. I want to be secure. I want to be comfortable. And if I do have to have it in my life, I just want to get through it as quick as possible and be done with it. James Chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. I cringe at verses like this. So, Lord, you want to bring trials in my life, but now you want me to count these as joy? If this is not from God's word, there is no way I could accept this. Maybe what God wants to do is for us to have a different orientation towards suffering, a different viewpoint to how we view trials. I don't know if you caught that the last part of that verse, it says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Are we allowing God to train us with his discipline? Are we teachable in his classroom of trials? Or are we resisting any trial or suffering God may want to bring into our lives?
But I think it's important to notice who is actually doing the discipline? Who is doing the pruning? The pruning is not being done by some vine dresser who just was hired for the day. No, it's the father who's extremely skilled with his shearers and he loves his vine and he loves the branches that are attached to it. The one doing the discipline is not a harsh judge, but the loving father. And he knows all that he has, he knows all the number of the hairs that are on your head, and he doesn't let one fall from him apart from his will. All that God is going to bring our way is for our good. When it comes to trials, I know they can be very difficult in suffering. So, what is God, what is he trying to accomplish with some of these things? One, he's creating the fruit zone. He's creating us so that there is a deeper and richer abiding in him, a deeper dependence on him. Also, it's an assurance. If we're being pruned, it's because we are alive. We're a real branch that is producing fruit. Or if we're being distanced because we're a true son, a true daughter that he loves, not some illegitimate son or daughter. And also, by doing this, by receiving these trials, by abiding in him, are we able to bear more fruit? As this unneeded growth is cut out of our lives, dead, infected growth, useless growth is cut out, it makes more room where we're able to give greater glory to our Father. And because of that, what is going on in time? What internally is happening during this time? Joy. Peace, contentment. There's an alien happiness that is outside of ourselves, that is not conditioned upon our circumstances, that we can truly be happy in Him, regardless of what is going on. Now, this is not meant to make light of any pain that you are facing or loved ones are facing or have faced. This is not a, you know, put a happy face on or look at the glass as half full. I think it takes a quick look at the Psalms, particularly David's prayers. David never sugarcoated his suffering. He was very honest with God, very real with God to let him know exactly what was going on and how much it, difficult it was. So this, that's not what we're talking about here. It is real and it is painful. But if I was to ask each one of you, when have you experienced God most powerfully in your lives? I would imagine almost everyone would say it was probably some sort of trial that you were going through, some sort of difficulty that you were passing through. When trials do come, or maybe they're here now, you know, we often pray, and this is a good prayer, Lord, please Take this from me. Please bring healing. Please, Lord, bring deliverance. Those are good prayers, biblical prayers, and you should be praying them for you, for your families, and for your church family. Absolutely. But do we stop there? Shouldn't we also pray prayers like this? God, this really hurts, and it is hard. Please be with me in this every step of the way, for I am weak but you are strong. 
Reveal to me anything that needs to be cut out of my life, God, that I need to repent and turn of, turn away from. God, would you make me teachable during this time? What is it that you want me to learn that I may bring you greater glory, Lord? Yes, absolutely pray for deliverance from these things, but also pray kingdom prayers in the midst of the trials and sufferings that you face. The other day, uh, Gemma and I were walking through the neighborhood, and we noticed that many of the houses, they had these long vertical planks of wood that said, welcome. And so we decided that we'd go, you know, knock on some doors and see if they really were truly wanting to welcome people to see if they'd buy us up for dinner, coffee, and dessert. We were joking, mostly. I, I preached this sermon to a church, and we had some friends that uh, lovingly came over, came over to the house the other day, and they gave us a welcome sign, a wooden welcome sign, so uh, that happened the other week. Um, but yes, uh, I imagine these welcome signs are for decoration. They look great in people's porches. Um, I imagine maybe many of you have them. Um, but when we talk about these things, suffering in the church, understanding it's for our good, understanding these things that we're looking at. You know, we talk about, is, are we just talking as if this is just Christian decoration? Do we really mean these things? Are we willing to let, uh, put out the welcome sign for God that if you want to bring trials our way, that Lord, we will embrace them? Because in embracing these, if it produces more fruit, greater abiding in Christ, assurance that we are his, steadfastness and greater glory to the Father, that we have a greater capacity to experience God's uh, love and grace in our lives, that we may experience his glorious, inexpressible joy, his peace that passes all understanding and a hope that doesn't disappoint. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this passage, this teaching that you have given your church, that Lord, we, as your branches, are attached to the true, living, dynamic, life-giving vine that is you, Jesus, and that we have life because of it. No matter what comes our way, you said you would never leave us or you would never forsake us, but you will be with us even in sufferings and difficulties and trials. And that even, God, as you are pruning us, God, let us worship you. Let us count it joy, as James says, these trials you bring to us, that we may be steadfast, that we may give you greater glory, O oh God. We praise you, Lord, for your kindness and mercy and grace to us in Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.